With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and it's the return of snooker player bingo. Many people have demanded it. You know, I'm not a performing monkey, but I've, 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 uh, I've, uh, I've weakened, and we're going we're to unleash that shortly. But uh, Phil Yates is here with me. We'll explain what it's all about for new listeners. But uh, first, Phil, well, I should explain, you might, you might have some background music, because the table fitters are working hard on setting up the, or, or, or um, doing the tables for the qualifying at the weekend, European Masters. We're here at the Championship League. Uh, it's our fourth week. We've been here a while. What are your sort of reflections? Well, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I think it's great to see so many players. Every day there's a, a new cast list, which is great if you're commentating because obviously it's not uh, repetitive in any way. I've been impressed by the majority of the top players. We've had 30 completed groups so far and 18 top seeds have come through. There have been shocks though. Mark Selby and Barry Hawkins played well and went out. Judd Trump didn't play well by his standards. He was very rusty. And uh, also, Kyron Wilson, I thought, played very poorly uh, to go out as well. But generally speaking, the form book is held up. I think the highlights for me, I thought Ben Wollaston played superbly to win his group and particularly to overcome Mark Selby. So maybe he's one to watch in the next phase. Uh, and it was really nice to see a couple of uh, amateurs, uh, Q-School top-ups, do well. Daniel Wells is one of his groups, so he's still involved. And Florian Nursler from Austria coming second in his group. That was good to see. Well, here's the thing, and because and, unusually online, there's uh, been some criticism of the event, but um, the first three weeks, I was talking to Jake from Matchroom, who looks after all the, the social media and everything. First three weeks, uh, in terms of TV, YouTube, Facebook, all the places where you can see either live coverage streaming or clips or any content associated with the Championship League, they had 5.2 million views. So clearly a lot of people are watching. Absolutely. You know, I think it's a perfect way to get the season started. And it gives the lower-ranked players the opportunity to play, if they're in uh, the Table 1 group, the opportunity to play in front of TV cameras 
three times in a day, and I think that really is good for them, especially the rookies. Mm. It gives them a, a, a grounding. I always think back to Pang Jun Su, who played in the Championship League a couple of years ago, and he looked very unimpressive to me, and I was saying to people, mm, yeah, I don't think he's going to be good enough. And then he had a wonderful rookie year, won the, the Rookie of the Year, and you know now he's doing really, really well, and he's clearly got a great temperament and a really good future. And I think playing in that Championship League really helped him to become accustomed to conditions and also to being in front of the TV cameras, and now he's right at home. And I think that will have the same effect for so many players. Yes, and also we've seen some uh, young European players, in particular Ben Mertens and Florian Nursler, who both finished second in their respective groups. Very talented, but also great attitude. Um, they didn't get down on themselves, they didn't... You know, they weren't sort of moaning all day long. They, they obviously they're young. It's new to them and, and it's experience for them. Ben's on the tour, and Florian obviously is trying to get on the tour. But anyway, uh, that's the Championship League. It continues next week, final week. Now, snooker player bingo. We've done it in the past. But essentially, it's this: I've written down the names of ten snooker players, uh, pretty much of the past. And Phil is going to pick a number, and that number will correspond to a player. And we're just going to talk about that player for a few minutes, and then move on to the next one. Um, it's quite niche, but, you know, it's a snooker podcast, so what, what do you expect? Um, so, Phil, we've got number one to ten. You don't know the names um, in advance, but pick a number. I'm in heaven, number seven. <laughs> well, number seven is a former world champion in... Well, he was world champion after the Joe Davis era and before the TV era, John Pullman, who, of course, probably best known, actually, now as a commentator. He commentated on the first maximum break on TV. Yeah, well... But I should say, sorry, Phil, I should say, we may have done some of these before. I couldn't bother to check, but anyway. <laughs> well, John Pullman won the World Championship on several occasions. Clearly, it was very different then, not the, the tournament structure we have now. But the fact is, he did win it, hmm. and he was a very good player. I think there are a couple of stories about Pullman. One is a, uh, one that's actually negative against him, but just shows how the game has come on in standard. When he won the English Amateur Championship before he turned pro... In the final, it was quite a lengthy match, and his highest break was 25. Now, that would be impossible mm. to reconcile these days. Uh, the other thing about Pullman was that he had an absolutely ferocious temper. Uh, temper. Mm. <laughs> when he had bad luck against him, he used to visibly get annoyed. Clive Everton has told me some extraordinary stories about him, you know, losing control. And he just didn't like it at all. Now, when he was playing Fred Davis... And Fred had a fluke. Of course, Fred was completely the opposite. He was quite sort of calm and laughed and mm. smiled. And I think that used to, to rile Pullman up even more. The other thing I will say about John is that he got an absolutely wonderful voice oh, yeah. for commentary. Yeah. Brilliant voice for commentary. And I think uh, of the old commentators, I think he would have fitted in in modern times because he was... Very witty as well. There was a, a tournament many years ago which was sponsored by Yamaha Organs. Mm. And the <laughs> the prize for the high break was a Yamaha organ. Yeah. And at one point, his co-commentator said, well, if he pots brown, blue, pink and black, he's going to equal the high break. And Pullman said, well, you know... What happens then? What do you do with half an organ? <laughs> but he had plenty of other... Th well, uh, here's the thing. I, I don't think he got enough credit. For, I think he came out with one of the great lines of commentary on that 147 at the very end. 
Steve's on the black. And, of course, David Taylor got very excited, and he's kind of talking over him. And Pullman remained in that sort of very um, sort of sober manner. And he, and he said of, of Davis, he said he can see the pockets closing up and closing up and getting smaller, which is a perfect... Um, illustration of, of what it must feel like under pressure when you know when you have to pot something it is suddenly the pocket smaller yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and the other thing with Pullman was although he was the world champion in the 50s he did play at the crucible as well mm. um so he, he, he did cross the generations yeah I, I didn't have a great amount of dealings with him but the ones I did I found him quite engaging and quite a a, a good person to be in company with mm. He obviously enjoyed uh, a sort of how shall we put it? He, he enjoyed a drink, didn't he? Mm. So that was um, that, that was definitely part of his makeup, and he was a very social person. And at tournaments in the early nineties, when I started, late eighties, he really enjoyed himself. There was a great story about <laughs> he had a massive tax bill or something, and uh, they rang him up the Inland Revenue, and he was sort of a couple of glasses in for the evening. They rang him up and they sort of said, "Mr. Pullman, you know, you owe all this money," and he just said, "I know nothing about this. Put the phone down." <laughs> that was the end of it. <laughs> no, great character, and uh, like you say, you know, he, he had that sort of he brought humour to commentary, um, which wasn't necessarily always the way back then. Um, lovely voice, yeah, yeah, and I also think, you know. He, he really was a, a, a genuine character. Mm. And I think, as I say, if he was around now, he would fit into the commentary scene. Obviously, it's very different now to what it was then. But, but definitely with his experience and his gravitas and his voice and his ability with words, he must have been pretty well read because mm. he was, you know, he came across as being educated. Let's put it that way. Mm. OK, well, you've had number seven, Phil. So what's your next number? OK, um... Key to the door number four. Well, it wasn't world champ, but he could have been, I think. Potentially, at one point, he was maybe touted as one. Steve James, uh, West Midlander. Well, I, I knew Steve very well. Uh, the last time I saw Steve, actually, I was sitting next to him at uh, the funeral of our good friend, John D. Um, Steve James was on the team at Wensbury Conservative Club that John put together, which was a superstar league team in the, the West Midland League it was Steve James Anthony Harris, Martin Clark Jim Chambers who all became professionals and a, and a lad called Steve Baldwin who actually was a, a very hard player to beat so I actually played Steve as well on a few occasions in Pro-Ams at Warsaw or at um, the, the, uh, the tournament in Snow Hill in Birmingham and it was obvious when I was playing him back then he was going to be something special um, Steve James, he's great asset, and I think he's one of the best players I've ever seen, potting balls down the side cushions. Mm. Now, I know that's, to use a word you've already employed, niche, but he was excellent at that, and he was so aggressive. He was actually before his time, and he won the Mercantile Credit Classic yeah. as well at a time when it was tough to win world-ranking events, so and every also credit to him. And also, uh, sorry, at a time when... Those events were the majors. Mm. The, the, we talk about majors now. The, those ranking events were considered, all of them, major tournaments. Yeah. Well, he, he beat Warren King in the final, but I think he beat Steve Davis on the way. Um, the other thing with Steve was, because he was a lover of speed and, you know... You should uh, qualify that. You mean in terms of motorbikes? Yes. yes. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, he loved the, the high-powered motorcycles, and he used to go at ridiculous speeds. And, and so he used to create stories like that if he had a, a, a crash or some kind of problem. And, and 
I remember on one occasion he created a great story for the tabloids. We were at Trentham Gardens in Stoke, and he went out on the boats on the on the lake there, and one of them sank while he was in it. <laughs> so that was a that was a good tale. Well, of course, he got two uh, notable achievements at the cruise, but one he made the only sixteen red break there against Alex Higgins, because he he beat him in that infamous match in nineteen ninety when Alex wouldn't come out of the arena afterwards. And the other, of course, he beat Hendry. Uh, crucible curse, he inflicted the curse on Hendry in, in 91 and around that time I mean obviously it was, a, you know, you had Hendry, Davis Parrott, White, they were the big four but he was kind of seen maybe as a potential winner of the, of the World Championship Definitely, absolutely uh, I think, funnily enough, it was at the Crucible the match that precipitated his decline, he lost very surprisingly 10-9 to Dino Kane in the first round, having been 9-5 up and I don't think he was ever quite the same after that uh, but certainly the match against Hendry you know, he was one of those players, Henry was not fond of anyone, but he was one of those players, he was a real wild card, mm. and if he played his best, all of the other players knew they could have their hands full, and he beat Henry in the quarterfinals. There was a lot of talk about Henry being burnt out, because he'd had an incredible season, the 1990-91 season, he'd played in pretty much everything, and he got to most finals, mm. or <coughs> went on to win the event... And I think there was a, a sort of an element of that, but also every credit to Steve James for, for getting the victory there, yeah. I mean, who beat Hendry in the early 90s at the Crucible? I think it was, it was him and him alone. Well, it was, until, he, until Ken in the final in 97, he was the only one in yeah. the 90s. Yeah. OK, well, we've had four and seven, so another number. Number two. Okay, you've given up on the actual bingo. bingo. <laughs> I just didn't know the one. What's well, the number two? No. Well, this is this is niche now. Barry West. <laughs> wow. Well, I'll tell you something about Barry West. He was Stephen Hendry's first ever opponent in a in a world ranking event. There you go. Right. Well, <laughs> Barry West from South Yorkshire, a, a very shrewd player and a, a very shrewd person as well. Um, the one thing I always remember about Barry was he, he really loved the game. Mm. You'd see him in arenas watching other people's games. Now, in pool, nine-ball pool, you see that a lot. One of the reasons is they want to work out how best to break off. So quite often if you see a pool tournament on TV, the camera will pan around and you'll see Shane Van Boning and the other superstars of the game actually watching other people play. Barry was like that, and it was because he was, he was so into the game. Um, wasn't the heaviest scorer by any means, but uh, he made the final stages of several big events on the BBC. Uh, had a good career, and yeah, he was a he was a, a real snooker enthusiast. Quite an enigmatic character. There was a story that um, I don't know how true it was, but I remember I used to get that Benson Edges yearbook. It was always in there every year when they did his profile. That he sat his O levels, but he never went back to find out how he'd done. For some reason. So, to this day, we don't know what his grades were. Maybe he didn't think they'd be any good. I don't know. Well, to spare this journalist's <laughs> blushes, my next story, I won't mention who it was, but basically there was a youngster on the on the tour who was doing radio reports. and Now he's quite well known, actually. But anyway, He is very yeah, well known yeah. now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, a- a- anyway, um, so we were at a tournament in Swindon, I believe, and Willie Thorne became one of the, at the time, a handful of players who'd made a century of centuries. Mm. And Willie was quite rightly very proud of it. And we trumpeted this um, in our radio reports that we did and in our newspaper reports. But the lad who was new to the, the snooker, who's now well known, mm. um, was overhearing what I was saying. And he asked 
the press officer who was a, a prankster, who were the other players mm. who have made a century of centuries. Now, Steve Davis was definitely one of them. I think it was three or four at the time. But, of course, the, the press officer who <laughs> liked to joke mm. mentioned Barry West. Now, Barry hadn't made double figures. Mm. And so on a string of radio reports on local <laughs> radio that afternoon, saying, Willie Thorne became the fourth player to make a century of centuries. He joins a blah, 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 Steve Davis and Barry West, <laughs> which couldn't have been further from the truth. No, but in, in a strange way, that's why I put him on the list, because actually, we're talking about about 35 years ago, he would have been just about in the top 32. Now, the equivalent player actually is a heavy scorer. So this is an example of how the strength and depth in the game has changed, because now, to be... World number 30 You've got to be really good Yeah absolutely And indeed World number 64 mm. um, We're at the Championship League At the moment um, I was looking at the, the The schedule today And you, you look down the, the rankings And Stuart Carrington World number 64 He just kept his card mm. And we all know How good Stuart is Well he made three centuries In a row at the Crucible That time didn't he Exactly Now The thing is He plays in, in group 12 As we're recording this um, Today Stuart Carrington had he played to the level he plays at now, if he could get in a time machine and go back to 1990, he would definitely, without any shadow of doubt, be in the top 32. And I personally believe he would be bordering the top 16. Mm. OK, another number. OK, uh, how about number one? <laughs> well, you thought, <laughs> thought Barry West was a niche choice. I've gone for him for, for a reason which I'll come on to, but Nigel Gilbert. Ah, now we're, now we're really digging, digging the depths. Okay. Well, Nigel Gilbert was from Bedford. Yeah. Uh, the two things I recall about him most, he came very close to beating Ronnie O'Sullivan at the UK Championship, lost 9-8. And a lot of the, the heavy gamblers who were around snooker at the time had had a lot of money on O'Sullivan. And they were very, very concerned because obviously that would have let their, their, their acker down. Uh, the, the other thing about Nigel was, and I can never understand this to this day. He went around with his own personal rest. Now, I can absolutely understand that. Because if you're used to a, a rest, fine. You know, it, it can be a, a security blanket. And anything you're accustomed to in an alien environment helps. But this rest was one of those that everyone hated in the <laughs> snooker clubs. It seemed to have this like really light plastic head. Now, I always found those to have no kind of stickability on the table, they were moving everywhere so I can never understand why he had that uh, but he was a, a very good player well, well here's the thing, when you said there's two things, I, I can't believe one of them wasn't the fact he wore a glove well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> other players wore a glove, but yeah, he was he was the he was the glove man, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but that's why he's on the list because I was thinking this week. Obviously, it's very hot, and the, the venue's actually been okay, isn't it? They, they tried to sort out like aircon and fans or whatever. But if it gets sticky, and Ross Muir was here as well because he, he he sometimes wore one. I, I wonder why more players haven't done that actually mm. down the years. Well, it definitely works. Again, uh, a story from Clive Everton. He played in the World Amateur Billiards Championship many years ago in Sri Lanka. Uh, so long ago, it was in Ceylon. And um, it was very, very hot, extremely hot, even for uh, the country at the time. And basically, all players wore a glove in that because otherwise they wouldn't have been able to cue. The other thing you can do, of course, is put a little bit of talcum powder in between your thumb and your, your, your forefinger. That does um, assist cueing. But again, you see, with Gilbert, the, the, the personalised rest and the glove, they were things that made him feel more comfortable under a pressurised environment, mm. so why not? He also, and this, he, 
this is a long-winded story, but but it's a podcast. Um, I remember watching him play Terry Griffiths in the World Championship on TV. It, it turned out to be 1990 because it turned up on YouTube recently. And Terry made back-to-back centuries, and the second one. It would have been the high break at that point in the tournament. I think it would have been one three eight, but he, he missed the last black, kind of rushing it because actually he needed the toilet. He went running out to the toilet, right? Um, and for some reason, I have a clear memory of that. But but my memory of it, for some reason, and again, there's no reason I need to remember this. For some reason, in my mind, it was always on the left hand table, you know, table two, and. On YouTube, it clearly isn't. It's on the right-hand side. Now, that, that, this is a meaningless in a way, but it's a, quite instructive on how we just remember things often not correctly, you know? Um, and in, on, I could have sworn, if you just put a gun to my head and said, which table did Terry Griffiths miss that black on? I would have said, it's definitely, without question, the left-hand table, and it wasn't. Happens all the time mm. to me. I'm convinced about certain things, and then when I, I check them up, I've been proved incorrect. Uh, not about the big things, but about, you know, little things like that, certainly. One thing with Gilbert, I have to say this, because he was doing well at, at uh, one point in the early 90s, and I remember I, I played with a guy um, at our club. Again, I won't uh, mention his name to save his blushes. He did actually turn pro in the end. Um, and he was convinced that wearing a glove was the right way forward, so he went out and bought one. The only thing was, he, he bought it for the wrong hand. <laughs> <laughs> so, he was, he was using it for his, for, for the hand that gripped the cue. He looked a bit like Michael Jackson, that was his only, uh, that was his, that was his only success. Nice. You, you, uh, took part in many thrillers. But anyway, um, okay, uh, another number. Number 10. Number 10, well, this is a well-known player, but I, I put him on, actually, uh, because I thought we should pay him tribute, because he just retired, Nigel Bond. What a gentleman. Mm. Absolutely lovely guy. Never did anything in his career that caused any controversy. Never came anywhere near close to disciplinary or offending anyone. When you can, you know, what is the, what is the measure of success in life? Is it, you know, lifting a load of trophies or is it being universally liked by everyone you come into contact with? Well, if it's the latter, Nigel Bond is the champion of the world. He's such a, a genuinely thoughtful individual. Um, I remember I went to um, Malta um, many years ago to an invitation event and I, I took my mother with me. And um, he was so kind to mom. And, you know, she always even now asks as Nigel and that's how he was with everyone so yeah so that's that's his character with regard to his playing career he had a very very good one and uh, of course he won the British Open in one of the most dramatic finishes to any world ranking event final ever yes well it was uh, against John Higgins of course um, deciding frame needed a snooker and got it and won on the black and, and there's foot again YouTube has it um Extraordinary atmosphere, actually. I mean, you know, you sort of, again, you know, people forget how big these tournaments were. You know, they, that was a huge occasion. Absolutely. The crowds all week were, were really, really good. I think, you know, now, it, it's actually, for John Higgins, it really showed him something because he was, he was 69 ahead with 67 on in the decider. And he basically played a very conservative shot to get what he thought was over the line. When he could have easily played a good positional shot and potted the extra ball after the, 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 the match ball. He didn't do that and it cost him in the end. Um, Bond cut in a really thin black from distance to win. And I was commentating with uh, Willie Thorne and uh, Willie 
was genuinely crying in the commentary mm. box. He was so pleased for Nigel. Mm. He was sort of, in some way, I'll mention Terry Griffiths again, he was some, some ways like Terry in the 80s. Terry kept at the Crucible running into Steve Davis, you know, who was obviously the, the king of, of that time. Nigel played Hendry four years running at the Crucible, including famously in a final. But he kept running into him, and obviously, you know, that kind of stopped him getting nearer to winning the, the World Championship. But um, he, and also, he, must remember, he broke through very quickly. I think even in his first season, he got he was getting to like semi-finals. He got to the final of the Grand Prix quite early on, 1990, and and stayed around a long time. He's only just dropped off. You know, no wild cards or anything. He would, he'd been on for over 30 years. He beat Judd Trump in the UK a couple of years ago. So you know, he, he, right to the end, he was still causing people problems. Yeah, I remember when he was. He was coming through pretty much at the same time as someone we've talked about before, Steve mm. James. And I remember him in Pro-Ams being absolutely deadly. I remember he won a, a Pro-Am at the, the Silver Q Club in, in Birmingham on one occasion. And he won the final in about 25 minutes, 3-0. And you thought, yeah, he can do something. Mm. It was more difficult then, of course, in the late 80s to get onto the tour. But when he eventually did, he, he made waves pretty much immediately. Does a lot of coaching now, I think, and, you know, would be a very good, uh, good person to, I think, to go and, uh, and learn from because he's got a lot of knowledge. We wish him well, of course, in his retirement. We'll do a couple more, Phil. Uh, so we've had one, two, four, seven and ten so far. Okay, uh, number eight. Okay, well, number eight, again, I mean, this is a very well-known player, but we, we sort of haven't really discussed him on here too much since he passed away, sadly, um, Doug Mountjoy. You know, I loved watching Doug Mountjoy play. He was so instrumental in so many big stories in snooker. Um, won the World Amateur Championship in South Africa in 1976, and just a few months later won the Masters. Um, always such a, a good player to watch. And for me... Yes, Matthew Stevens got so close to winning the World Championship. Jimmy White got so close as well. And the third person who I think could easily have been world champion, and he wasn't quite, was Doug. Mm. He won the Masters, he won the, the UK Championship. Now, that UK Championship, yes, he'd won it in 78. Ten years later, his game was in disarray. I remember him playing Neil Folds at the Crucible in the April before he won the UK. And Neil beat him very easily. Uh, with a session to spare, and on one occasion, the white was close to the cube. The white was close to the uh, cushion, and he actually topped the white. It was mm. really embarrassing. Um, then, of course, he got uh, under the the guidance of the legendary coach Frank Callan, and his improvement was was out of this world. It wasn't just the fact he beat Stephen Hendry in the final of that UK Championship. It was the fact he made three consecutive centuries. Sometimes you can win a match without playing well. It's just, if the other guy has a bad day, you can come through. Doug played brilliantly in that match. He well, really the, did. Well, yeah, the three centuries, the, the first time it happened had been only a couple of months earlier, Steve Davis. So it wasn't a regular thing at all. And then, of course, he won the next ranking event, the Mercantile Classic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, of course, we were talking about this last year, or last season, actually. When Doug won the second UK, he was 46. Mm. He seemed like he was an old-age pensioner. Yeah. Yeah. Because at the time, the game was the demographic of the game was so much younger than it is now. And, of course, Ronnie O'Sullivan's mm. now the world champion at, at 46. Yeah, so he went, to the, he went to the mercantile. Now, that wasn't... It was a great story, but it wasn't a great final. He beat Wayne Jones, I recall, his fellow Welshman mm. uh, at Blackpool. Not a great match. One of the worst finals I've seen, actually. But... The fact he won two world-ranking events in such a short space of time at what we thought then was such an advanced age, great. Yeah, and it's kind of nice as well that in the end he would because he played in Mark Williams' club and he would go in 
and just have a few frames. He's sort of gone back to where he started, really, just doing it for the love of it. Mm. It's nice to think that someone like that retained that love and he wasn't bothering anyone. He was just sort of having a, a sociable game and, and, and still in touch with, with snooker. Yeah, and I think Doug was on the first ever world... It was called the World Team Cup. Mm. But it was the world first ever World Cup team. It was Doug, Ray Reardon and Terry Griffiths. And... Um, they didn't just beat England with a session to spare in the final. It was at Hayden Hill Leisure Centre, which is very close to uh, where I live. Um, they beat them with a day to spare. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> a, it was a day to spare. Well, it's a great team. I mean, yeah. that's sort of, you think of that time, that's the sort of holy trinity of Welsh snooker, isn't it, right there? Absolutely. Yeah, he's, he sadly missed Doug. He was a really good guy and a, a, a proper professional. Absolutely. OK, uh, another number. OK, uh, did I say number three yet? No. Well, you'll like this one because he's a good friend of yours. Twice quarterfinalist in the World Championship from Canada, Jim Weich. I, I can't speak highly enough about Jim. He's got a club now in Toronto called the Corner Bank, uh, which is uh, really doing well, I'm led to believe. And I'd love to go over and, and see him at some point. I've studied his house in, uh, in Oakville in, in Toronto, Jim. Um, we've had some great times in the commentary box and elsewhere. What a talented individual he is. Apart from being a good businessman, as you say, he got to two quarterfinals at the at the World Championship. But also, he's a really good pool player. You know, mm. he never played competitively. Had he done so, I think he would have done well. Um, good golfer, just a, a generally good person to be around. And as I say, when I was commentating with him, it was a, a joy. He was one of the first players. Um, who actually um, could be a lead commentator, mm. certainly in pool, um, and I thought he did a great job over the years. He was very enthusiastic, um, yeah, uh, and a youthful spirit. He's in his 60s now, but uh, yeah, I, I think uh, Jim Weich, all the people I've met in snooker over the years, would be one of my best friends. Yeah, well, it, that 92 championship, he got to the quarterfinals there. Um, it was quite important to me, that tournament, because I would say... It, it would be the one I most remember before I started working in snooker, definitely. I think because it must have been on during the Easter holidays, so I would have been off school, so I would have watched a lot of it. Um, and obviously it ended with a, a very memorable final. It's 30 years ago now, by the way, that happened. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, we're, we're as far away from that 92 championship as that was from the first Beatles record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. if you want to think of it that way. Anyway, but I remember watching that tournament you know, avidly, and I mean, I was already into snooker, but I think that definitely sort of cemented, you know, something. I think it was no stretch to say, but for that tournament, I might not be here now. Now there'll be people saying, well, you know, thanks a lot, 92, for that. But uh, yeah, I, I remember that tournament very clear. I remember Terry got to the semis. Uh, keep talking about Terry Griffiths, but he got to the semis. He, obviously, the Jimi Hendry rivalry sort of, you know, hit its peak. It was a very, it was a great world championship, that was. Um, now, I'm not talking about standard, you know, if you want to look back at centuries, whatever, but that's not the point. It's about, it's about the memories it implants in you, um, and what it means to you. And obviously he was part of that. And to get to the quarterfinals, you know, I think he got there in 80 as well, so it's quite a long uh, time apart. Yeah, and he wasn't playing continuously for yeah. the 12 years either. He had a, a, a long sabbatical from the mm. game. So yeah, he was that kind of person. He was a very, um, he, he was very competitive without seeming it. Yeah. Um, I think, now I'm going to get the, 
almanac out after I've spoken to you because I've got to check this. I think it'd be Dean Reynolds and Willie Thorne to get to the quarters. You'd beat Willie, definitely. Yeah. But here's the thing, you mentioned his commentary and he was a great commentator. But that's proof of, he wasn't a multi-world champion. He wasn't a top player in the very elite sense. But, but he proved you don't have to be to be a great broadcaster. What you need is vocabulary, intelligence and timing and all the things that make great broadcasters. Look, at the moment, you look at uh, snooker commentary and we can only gauge this from who we work with and how we feel when we work with them. Neil Folds, absolutely gold standard. Alan McManus, brilliant simply amazing at his job and someone we've worked with this week mm. Joe Perry a yep. couple of world ranking titles but nowhere near winning the world world championship obviously a, a semi-final and yet they're really good commentators who know the modern game inside out mm. you don't need to have lifted trophies to be able to communicate obviously that gives you gravitas there's no oh. doubt about it and some world champions are extremely good commentators but it's not a prerequisite We'll do one more, Phil. So we've got five, six and nine. I'll go for five. OK, well, we're sort of almost going back to where we started because this is probably... He was a player, but best known for being a commentator. Jim Meadowcroft. Right, well, <clears throat> I never saw Meadowcroft when he was playing uh, at his best. Nowhere near. In fact, for a large number of years, he was playing quite poorly... Um, when I saw him was at the qualifiers right at the end of his career um, I recall that he um, was on the receiving end of Alain Robidoux's 147 okay. uh, in the European Open qualifiers a Black very Earth. early one that would be that would have very yeah. early one yeah 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 um, he was a quarter finalist in the world championship that was before my time um, commentator as well uh, the other thing about the other thing about Jim was I thought he had a quite extraordinary hairstyle. Mm. Never changed, did it? Mm. Never changed over the years. Uh, but they all reckon. Uh, you speak to Dennis about this. They all reckon in the early seventies he was a formidable player. I, I never saw that. Well, this is the point, isn't it? There are, there are players. I mean, Pullman would have been one, and, and even like Ray Reardon, whose best years came before the game became a, a professional sport as we know it and they, they had opportunities to to earn money from it. I mean, Reardon didn't turn pro till he was 35. <laughs> it seems incredible. But Meadowcroft, I suppose he's best known as a commentator. He, he, he was BBC man. He was on the end of the 85 final with Ted Lowe um, and then went to ITV and then I think he came back to uh, the BBC um, and uh, I mean, I think people kind of remember, remember him quite fondly. He was one of those voices of that era, wasn't he? Yeah, he's from Baker. Nice. In, in Lancashire, so he got that very uh, good accent, which I, I, I love, uh, from that area. Now, I can't verify this. I'll have to go on Q-Tracker and try and find this. Whether it will be there, I don't know. But there was some story... Well, if it's not there, it won't be anywhere. So. Yeah, there was some story about the 80s where he was involved in an extraordinary match against Graham Miles. Mm. Um, I think it was... I think it was somewhere down south. But anyway, the story was that, obviously, if you turn up late for a snooker match then as now you get docked frames yeah. and they were both late <laughs> and the story was it was two each at the interval and there hadn't been a ball potted <laughs> <laughs> but they started the interval yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly he, to he told me well, we, you know we can, we can have a gossip here we to he told me about the 85 final I mean I don't I have no idea if it's true but he said uh, he wasn't supposed to do the end he'd he started early that evening and uh, 
the producer said to him, he said, I think you're doing well, I'm going to keep you on, to the, to the chagrin of one of the others. Now, I don't know who the other one was. It may have been John Spencer, I don't know. But it may also, may not be true. <laughs> That's the other thing. But, of course, he's, his voice is always there, isn't it? You know, it's all, that, I mean, that, we know that gets replayed a hell of a lot, that final. It's, he's always, put, he's always going to be part of that. The other day here, um, Peng Yi Song made his um, TV debut yeah. as a professional. And he's got dyed grey hair. That, of course, got us talking about the Silver Fox, David Taylor. Yes. And you mentioned quite correctly, he was commentating um, yeah. on, on that 147. And so he's always there on that. It's a, mm. a form of... It's a form of immortality. Yes, well, and there'll always be this podcast as well. That's the other thing. Well, thank you, Phil. We didn't get that, that, uh, time to do the others, but uh, this feature will uh, return. And, uh, well, what if anyone has any suggestions for players, uh, that the more niche the better, that we could discuss in future, let us know. Uh, the email address is snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Snookerscenepodcast.mail.com. Hopefully the background noise wasn't too off-putting. I don't think it was. And, um, yeah, so... Uh, what have we got here, Phil? Sort of general thoughts about the season ahead. I mean, obviously we're still missing the China events. We, that, that's out of people's hands. Um, but pretty soon, you know, it's a, it's a sort of breezing ourselves in. But once we get into sort of October time, the tournaments are coming quite regularly. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the season ahead. Uh, I love the fact that um, there are so many stories within stories. This Championship League, whoever wins this, if they're not already qualified, they're going into the Champion of Champions. With the £33,000 they're going to win, they will more than likely play in the World Grand Prix and that could get them into the, the Players' Championship and the Tour Championship. So these tournaments aren't islands anymore, are they? They're all interconnected and that's what I love. With regard to the Chinese events, you know, the old phrase, be careful what you mm. wish for. Those years when players were regularly going to China, a lot of them were moaning about the travel and the fact that the schedule was quite arduous. Now they aren't moaning. They wish they could go back because the the events were extra special. They were played for big money, big world ranking points in front of an appreciative audience, whether it was either live or on TV. And so be careful what you wish for. We want to see snooker back in China quickly. And, of course, when it does go back there, we've got the added spice that Zhao Zintong and Yan Bingtao will play there as major champions for the first time. I have to say, just finally, you know, some snooker players, you do slightly question sort of their logic because there was one yesterday in the players' room saying that he said it's now impossible to get in the Tour Championship. There aren't enough tournaments. Well, it's not impossible. Eight people will get into it. So it is possible to get into it. There'll be eight players in it. But then he said he hadn't done any practice for the new season. So I'm thinking, well, you're not really giving yourself the best chance, are you, to get in these tournaments if you haven't practiced? What have you been doing for three months? I've always thought this. Always. And I'm speaking from a non-player perspective. But why, why do players have such a, a lengthy period off? Now, I can understand a, a, a period of decompression, undoubtedly. But in what other job do you get three months off? Now, if you practice hard for the start of the new season, because of traditions of not practicing amongst most players, you're going to be at a massive advantage, aren't you? And so you could get a real leg up on them, take the pressure off yourself for later in the season, which in turn helps. The Chinese players, by and large, haven't gone back to China since the World Championship because of exorbitant airfares and the COVID situation, all that kind of stuff. They've clearly been in the academies wherever they play, practicing hard, and that's shone through in this, the Championship League, where so far, seven of them have reached the second phase. Yeah, and also, say, say you're, you're a musician in an orchestra, you're, the concert might not be for another month, but you play that instrument every day to, 
so that you can still play it to a high level. You don't just sort of pick pick up the violin the day before, do you? Anyway, we're, we're sort of yakking now, so uh, we'll end there. The Championship League will continue, of course, uh, on free sports uh, and uh, Matchroom Live. It's, the second table is on YouTube. There's all other platforms as well around the world. And we will return very soon. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.